Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to... This month's Discord q and I'm A.L. Levy, and with me is the one and only Buster Odehome. Buster, how are you doing? I'm just sitting silently and mystically. I'm, do- I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I- I'm doing very, very good. Happy to have you on here. Happy to be talking to you again. It's always Great. fun. Happy to be here, man. Yeah. Well, Buster, what have you been up to? Dude, I've been working on some remixes of some old records of my band, been uh, producing, actually producing some new alt tracks. Um, oh, nice! Person. So that's that's cool to be involved from the beginning this time. Yeah. How is uh, in person going, dude? That's it's cool. I mean, I, I want to do that more often because let's face it: if you're sitting all day mixing a bunch of bands from different countries, you're pretty much always just sitting by yourself working, which is cool and all, but when you've done that for a long time, it's cool to kind of meet people face to face and kind of have a a vibe going and maybe like be a bit more creative together with the band. So that that's been fun uh, to do that for sure. It seems like after so long of not working with people in person, that it would be kind of, kind of weird, but kind of awesome at the same time. And I really do think alt are one of those bands that we're going to be hearing a lot about in the next few years. I really hope so, for sure. Those guys are very talented and driven as well. And uh, they seem to be kind of in it for uh, in it to win it, basically. Kind of not like people are moving to the same city now and stuff like that. So they're like willing to affect their lives to get this thing going, which is cool. Yeah. What I'm wondering is like, you know, when you see an unsigned band, how like what are the things about an unsigned band that makes you think to yourself, all right, I should spend time with this one. I know you get hit up by unsigned bands all the time. And look, let's be real. The majority of the time, it's just a waste. It's a waste. I mean, if you need the money, cool. But like as far as career development goes, it's kind of a waste of time to think about 
working with too many local bands. That said, what is the difference? Like, how can you tell that these are worth working with? And then once you answer that, we're going to go to our first question from Charlie Williamson. But first, I'm just curious how you can tell the difference between an unsigned band that has potential and one that doesn't. Yeah, um, I'm pretty open about working with people because even though they might be like a lower level uh, writing wise and production wise that's kind of why I'm there so it's cool to it's both it's both cool to have people that really know their shit and people who maybe are not that involved and that can with my help bring bring their music to life maybe more than they thought they could like so so that's I I think both both cases are great but like as far as me seeing like potential in a band that's just like the music that's the only thing I can think of because all of the other stuff like as far as like uh, promoting themselves and videos and stuff that comes later like if you have the music and focus on that uh, you're you're gonna get my attention at least if I, if I like the music for sure because after all I mean that is your end of the process yeah 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 you don't deal with their promotion but you make sure that the music that they're putting there, there, out there's, there's tons the of bands yeah. there's tons of bands with great promotion and videos and stuff but the music and the production is not that great so i mean that could be a thing that lures you in like these guys are willing to really be serious about videos and stuff like that and i can help with the music so that might be a thing as well but uh for me it's mainly the music being there from 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 the beginning makes sense okay first question from charlie williamson so my question is since you're a drummer and you're known also for programming drums quite often in your work, what are some of the challenges you sort of had to deal with in that regard? I think it's less challenging for me since I'm a drummer programming drums, but you really have to analyze what is actually what, what you're actually doing when you're sitting down playing drums. I watched a thing with um, yesterday with uh, Hans Zimmer and he was talking about programming uh, and uh, the computer and he said like, the computer is just as much an instrument as an instrument. Like, and he he talked about being virtuosic when programming. So, like, learning to program is not about just making a beat or making making a note happen or chords or whatever it might be. It's also about hearing the the subtle nuances of playing and like knowing. Uh, velocities and timing in a different way than just like a robot programming a 4-4 beat with like 127 velocity, you know. There's a lot to go into, but it's also like very dependent on the libraries you're you're using uh, to accommodate all the things you, you might want to add. I'm still uh, learning for sure because I kind of want that inhuman consistency still that production or, or samples or a certain way of processing drums gives you. I still want that, but I want, it's like a, you go between like human sounding and dynamics versus uh, overproduced, uh, triggered. I kind of want to be in the middle of that. I basically just go super dynamic when I, when I program and then I layer in like one shots or samples that sound more triggered to my taste. That way you kind of get both, best of both worlds, basically. Great answer. Just out of curiosity, Charlie, uh, are you a drummer or are you just trying to get better at programming? Um, no, do you, I'm, I'm do you guitarist. record drummers? So, okay. Yeah. It's so definitely something I struggle with. It's making my drums sound realistic, my uh, virtual drums. 
Yeah, I can, I, I can see that. I always get like, or not always, but like 70% of the time is a guitarist who has programmed the drums I'm working on. So so it's always like one of the things, uh, maybe that's obvious to you, Charlie, but one of the things to think about is like, can the arms move in this way, if you if you kind of visualize how to play a certain thing, a fill or whatever, because a lot of the time you need like three arms or four legs to do certain things. That's always a thing like to think about that is, is it possible to play him? But then you have guys like uh, Drew uh, and those guys who mix like Emure and they're adding like four crashes on a downbeat. But that kind of has an effect. That's kind of diff- a different thing from like a fill that is kind of just impossible to play or a fill that a drummer would never play. But it's kind of hard if you don't play yourself to, 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 know, to know those things. And me as a player as well, it's, it's pretty hard for me to know kind of what I do myself unless I kind of record drums myself and see like the velocities, what I did, what kind of naturally happened. Programming drums is, would always, will always be like a challenge because, yeah, you don't know, do you want to make it superhuman or do you want to make it like I'm, I'm talking about superhuman, like a super superman human, not superhuman. Do you want to make it like super triggered sounding or do you want to make it super dynamic and human sounding? Uh, I think I'm on the same page as you. I think I like it in between. So sort of triggered sounding. But at the same time, if you listen to it, I don't want someone to hear it and think, oh, that's not real drums. Right. I had an experience. This is what kind of put me on the right path. I started off like lots of people writing my own music and programming drums for drummers to play. And I was super lucky early on in when my band was local that I found this drummer named Kevin Talley through a classified ad. (laughs) And uh, now he had been in a bands like Dying Fetus and stuff like that that were big death metal bands. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going to get this amazing death metal drummer to play for my local band's album. And it's going to be great. I'm just going to give him what I programmed and he's going to learn it. And uh, so I gave him what I programmed and he eviscerated me because it was so unrealistic and impossible to play, you know, would have required like five arms and there's like, you know, floor toms at the same time as rack toms at the same time as China's at the same time as a splash or like things that were just impossible. From that experience, I realized, uh, wait a second, I need to actually think about what drummers can actually do even if they're amazing drummers start taking drum lessons and transcribing drum parts transcribing them to midi not like notation but like with velocities and everything so that i could just understand how to program real drums and what drummers actually play i only took drum lessons for six months but anyways that experience of actually physically understanding how it is for a drummer changed my programming completely to where I never got shit from a drummer ever again for my uh, programming. So anyways, that said, Charlie, thank you very much. Thank uh, you, guys. Going to now call on Mr. Joe Scaletta. Awesome. Thank you, Buster, for doing this. Um, my question is, like, something I really like about your work is kind of the innovation of sounds that you have. So where do you find inspiration from it? Are you looking at music that's coming out today, or are you looking at music that comes from the past? Right. Uh, yeah, the writing is because I'm in Viljarda with two other guys that, ra- that write really crazy stuff so it's kind of like i get so influenced but by those guys and kind of when i get the files i can listen to what they actually did and 
um, be like more intimate with the material and that way i kind of learn uh, how to make my own music the way i want to hear it but yeah as first inspiration well yeah it's hard to say uh, i would say like the guys in the band like is the biggest inspiration as far as the riffs go and the synths and effects are kind of just me trying things out and like and i kind of have like a like as far as sound goes i have like a thing in my head that i know like if i hear a sound i know immediately wanna, what i want to do with it to make it sound like i want to hear so for me it's kind of nat- a natural process because maybe i find a synth uh, a synth and then i have a note that kind of fits with the riff and then i listen to the riff with the synth and then i kind of hear okay maybe this synth can have a ryth- rhythmic aspect to it so maybe i cut it up and distort it so it's like or something and maybe put some reverb on it and then put it in because that's just my brain hearing stuff and kind of wanting to change it or go in a certain direction. That kind of happens when I listen to any music, basically. I kind of want to change it or I kind of know what I want to do with the sound to get to where I'm liking it more, I guess. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Philip Self. Cool. So, uh, all right. So, Buster, uh, you mentioned you're working with Alt from scratch this time around. Uh, can you talk about the difference in this experience and what helped you what helped you build that relationship so that when this opportunity came around, the band would want to work closer with you as a producer? It was kind of both parties that talked about working more closely on on certain stuff, and uh, it kind of ended up with me just kind of booking a date with the guitarist uh, and we had dinner and no, I'm just kidding, but he came here and we just started riffing together and we kind of made half or a little more than half a song. And then he sent that to the other guitarist and he continued on it and they had a couple of other, other songs. And then they came here, all of them just like a week ago. And then we went through all the songs. What I do is basically start with drums reprogram all the drums kind of add fills grooves uh, humanizing just making sure that everything i do now is final so when i get the files the midi will just be like the the best it can be with my setup basically um so i just go through all the drums and then we go through bass if, if it's if it's uh, necessary then i go through guitars kind of the riffs how how they how they are play playing them maybe i want to kind of grab notes on different uh, positions on the neck then they they're doing it and kind of suggest stuff like that that lends itself to uh, my way of producing i guess uh, for for instance like the the classic thing is a lot of the bands that are doing the the thaw or the, the like the more genty stuff if they pick notes uh, on like the the third or fourth string and they're doing it like really low down on the neck it it can tend to sound a bit thin and i usually want to move that up to like the thickest or the next to thickest string and like higher up on the neck because it sounds just thicker and stuff like that i can suggest and go through all the riffs and 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 just make them as good as they can be did i answer your question even <laughs> maybe i just started ranting Oh, no, you totally did. I mean, it's just great to hear. Like, it's just an organic thing. You're just being a good hang. You're chilling, you're vibing with the guys, and that's how it, it leads into it, which is, you know, exactly what I'm looking for. 
Yeah, I'm not really doing like the thing like, yeah, this is my producing rate, blah, blah, blah. I'm I'm more interested in getting a better result than getting more money. For me, it's just like cool that a band wants to take that step and kind of uh, go in that direction. And, and the money thing always kind of, it, it always happens in a cool way because they want to pay for what you're doing if you're doing good work. So that's kind of what I'm... Uh, thinking about when I'm when I'm doing it, I'm more thinking about the result and kind of being that guy that they can't be without when they're making their music. So they'll they'll come back basically. Okay, great, thanks, Philip. Next up, we've got Billy Meridian. Awesome, thank you for uh, taking the question. It's kind of a two two parter, if that's okay. Yeah, um, awesome. Uh, so the first one is, uh, do you have like I don't know if you call it like a hierarchy or something, but like you know you play drums obviously with Veljarda, you have guitar with uh, HLB and then all of the mixing and mastering you're doing. Um, do you have one you lean more towards in terms of like your passion or do you think that one's a bigger part of your career at this point? And um, which of them did you kind of focus on getting together first before kind of adding in the other stuff? And then the other question, just more of a drum related question, how, how do you go about memorizing all the stuff for Viljarda? And hopefully I'm not misremembering this, but I know in the past you talked about programming because of how time consuming it is to learn their music and it's just more practical and you can still, you know, get the vision you had on drums and i feel like with viljarda the rhythms are so like specifically unique even more so than a lot of other complex kind of modern rhythmic metal stuff um with all the space and the breakdowns and the subdivisions changing all the displacement so you know when that yeah. time comes that you do need to learn all that stuff say to go on tour or whatever it is or you know after this album i know right now you're actually recording drums um how do you go about learning all that in a way that doesn't mm. take time into everything else you're doing in your career all right. So the first question, um, I would say I prioritize mixing way, way, way more than guitar, drums or bands that I'm in because I'm not in bands that are trying to make a living on it. So it's kind of the bands are kind of processes that happen automatically like someone I mean, music's always happening in those bands. If it's me writing riffs or the Viljarda guys uh, writing songs and I'm kind of compiling it and making songs here uh, in the studio and sending it out to the guys. It's always a process that's happening. So, of course, I'm down to do that all the time. But uh, as far as the prioritizing goes, it's uh, I'm way more obsessed with mixing and, and stuff like that. So and like, I don't know if it has to do with that, but I learned drums first when I was a kid and I played a lot, uh, a lot of drums like, uh, yeah. A lot of drums and then i learned guitar and then i played a lot of guitar and then i learned mixing and i've been mixing a lot so it's kind of that order uh i guess um but it's cool. i i felt that i've <laughs> yeah well, every time i play drums it's fun but i feel like uh, i've done it enough <laughs> i don't know it's uh, uh maybe that's a bad uh, thing but yeah uh I, I, it's not something i do for fun basically but um Okay, so learning the Viljarda songs, the process with the drums on the Viljarda album would be uh, the guys themselves programming the drums, uh, and I'm getting the MIDI, and I'm, I'm mapping it out here, and then I just go through it all and add fills or add grooves or remove stuff. Uh, but I'm always keeping their ideas, um, and sometimes I have to revert back to stuff they like, and they tend to like a lot of like guitarist programs, drums type sounding stuff. So it's like uh, the stuff that sounds really stupid and uh, unhuman or, or it's not, not, not unhuman, but something that a drummer would never play. 
they like that stuff. So I have to keep some of that stuff. Uh, and and it, it, it's it's possible to learn. It's just a bit like this. You're not there. Is there's it's stuff that I wouldn't play myself basically if I sat down and kind of improvised. But if I if I learn it by like by ear, it's it's fine. But the way I do it is I I have a session with like I think I started programming or I started uh, learning the drums when we were like five or six songs in to the album. So I had like a long file with all the songs after one another with the tempo, and I just went through like four bars at a time looping. So I would loop. Let's say a riff is four bar four bars. So I would loop one bar till I nailed that. Then I, I would go to the second bar, loop that. And then I would loop the first and the second bar together. Uh, and I would go to the third, loop that. And then I go uh, listen to or play all three at the same time. So that's kind of the process. But the, the, the hardest thing about that is kind of remembering uh, what you're doing like after the fact. So when I come back and I kind of start on new riffs, I need to spend like a good hour reminding myself of what i learned the day before so i had i when when i got into like seven or eight more songs that i that I would learn i would have one day for playing through the songs i've learned and one day learning new stuff so that i would constantly remind myself of what i've learned and then spend a day just trying to learn new stuff and then that would just be the the cycle but as far as like how would you learn that stuff how do how do you remember that stuff that's like a skill that i've had since i was a kid as far as like using my ear to pick out songs and uh, play uh, i did that like when i was a kid all the time just just entire records i would pick out and play and that is a muscle that i've uh, exercised a lot when i was a kid that's kind of resulted in me having like a good musical memory, I would say. Thank you, Billy. I can uh, just comment a little bit that uh, I come from a family where my dad has a photographic memory and he uses it to memorize entire symphonies. Um, and so he always conducts every single program ever from memory. And I mean, you know, these are these pieces can be like over an hour long. You know? That's and, insane. And he remembers the shit down to like you know, what second flute is doing in measure three of page 108 or something. Um, but so, so I always looked at that as freakish. But then as I started learning music and writing music, I realized that uh, your musical memory just develops as you learn more music. And the better you learn what you're working on, the stronger you get with it. And there are systems that you can employ for um, structure to help you remember things better. There's all kinds of memory tricks you can use, but at the end of the day, it comes down to understanding how you take in music and then using that. If you're visual, like my dad, he would take basically snapshots of the score in his mind. And then when he's conducting, he turns the pages. And I, and because I realized that he would be memorizing this stuff on an airplane or watching TV or on the phone, just turning pages, you know, just like a camera. And then he'd play back in his head uh, and he has perfect pitch. So he'd be able to read it in his head and see it perfectly. So that's what worked for him. But then I know other people like that drummer I talked about, Kevin Talley, who would learn an entire set for like Black Dahlia Murder in an afternoon, he would basically listen to it a lot and 
you know, so he listened to it all day long, get it in his ears, and then write out a basic little structure for himself. So the act of writing out that structure and listening to it was all he needed. So basically what I'm saying is everybody has their own way of uh, triggering their memory. You need to figure out what that way is for you and then just do it more and more and more and more. It's uh, the more reps you get, the better you will get at it. And that said, okay, Toby, Alan, you are up. Uh, thanks, Buster and Al, for all your hard work and for putting on this uh, Q and A session. It's really, I'm really enjoying this format. So, Buster, my question: How much emphasis do you put on emotional intent on the sounds of your mixes? Well, yeah, that would have to kind of assume that I have emotion, like emotions uh, invested. I would assume in that I am human. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, assuming that I feel something for the music and stuff like that, or at least understand the the band's perspective of it, I guess. But I would say it differs depending on what I'm mixing and how I feel about it. But I I try to make whatever ideas the band have uh, happen that creates the feeling they want. So unless they're unless they say otherwise, like yeah, I just try to make the music I have in front of me sound as good as possible. And I'm I'm not sure I kind of think as far as emotion goes. Maybe I do it subconsciously, but it's not something I'm thinking about that often. I'm more thinking about like the technical, like the frequencies or whatever I might be hearing, and uh, just trying to make everything heard that the band has composed. Cool. That emotion question is interesting because, you know, as we know, the uh, the listening audience reacts emotionally to music. But uh, there's no rule that says that the person working on the music has to have the same emotional reaction as as the audience. I think uh, most engineers kind of subconsciously get the thing that the band is trying to do. Yes. You can, you can make all those changes automatically because to us, it's, it's just like, yeah, I'm making the song better or whatever. I'm, I'm, tr I'm just working like uh, that might like impact the emotional, uh, yeah, the emotional impact of a song for sure. And that's definitely what we're trying to do. But what I'm saying is I'm kind of, I'm not really thinking about it that literally that I could kind of describe like what I'm doing for the emotion, but uh, it's definitely a priority, but I think it's more like an automatic thing when you're mixing. Awesome. That makes, well, yeah, thank, that makes you, sense. thank you. All right. Next up, we've got the one, the only John Maciel. Yo, it wouldn't be me if I didn't mess with you guys a little bit. Uh, True. <laughs> How you guys doing? Buster, what's good. up, man? We're good, man. How are you? Doing well, doing well. All right. So, I wanted to jump in here and ask a question that I don't think anyone's going to ask because I have a little bit different perspective, having been fortunate enough to work under Bo. And one thing I think uh, would be an interesting question to hear from you to help the audience is you have your own bands and then you work closely with the, every band you work with from what we've seen on Nail the Mix. And I've seen Bo produce records with different bands and have to get into the headspace of each band's character and the tones of those songs. And I'm just curious for someone like yourself who deals with so many heavy bands, how do you get yourself in the mindset of helping produce those bands and those records? And, you know, I know it's about getting, having cool songs at the end of the day, but how do you make sure that, um, I guess you're taking the band sound more into consideration than I guess your own ego and keeping that ego in check so that 
the best thing for the band is what happens ultimately so that, you know, everyone's happy. If you can speak on that perspective and, you know, some tidbits for the audience to keep in mind when they're working with artists on just being aware of the ego when it comes to writing with multiple artists, especially in the heavier genres where I know some of the students can get burnt out and they think it all sounds the same, but each band is unique and different. So keen in on that. Yeah, I don't write a ton for bands. That's just something I've started with recently, actually. So, so I'm, I would say I'm still new at that specifically. Uh, but as far as mixing, I would have to rely on like the band's feedback. Uh, but but like the first mix would just be me giving my take on the song. Uh, and if there are problems with me even kind of realizing my take, I might uh, ask them if I could like add drum parts or remove stuff and be free on that in that sense and i would be able to do my thing uh but if uh, like if 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 a band is like really clear about their direct direction i i'm i'm relying on them to tell me basically but writing as far as keeping it fresh i think all the, all bands that i've done recently have been very different in like what the influences are and stuff like that and we can we can disagree uh, on what we think is good, but <laughs> I tend to just like, if I don't like a part, I would just ask the band, how do you feel about this part? Uh, for instance, like a lot of bands tend to react, either they react, we like it. And I'm, and I'm just like, okay. And then we, we leave that. But since I'm asking a lot of bands kind of, uh, gets a bit like, Hmm, like, what are you thinking? Or do you have an idea what you could do differently with this part? They ask me and I could kind of show them what I would do with a part. And if they like it, we keep it. And if they don't like it, we don't keep it. So uh, I'm definitely interested in what the band thinks at all times. Uh, and I don't want, I don't want the, the music to be my music with their uh, maybe their leads or, or something. I, I want it to be their stuff. And I, I and I kind of, I can warn bands sometimes, like Alt, for instance, they have they have quite a lot of more Thal-inspired riffage like on the new stuff. And, and I'm just saying to them, like, is this what you want to do? Because you will be labeled a Thal band. And that's just the fact. Uh, since you're working with me and you have these types of riffs, just know that that's going to be the label you, you, you get. Uh, and either they're fine with it or they're not. And we have to do something about it. Did that answer your question? Yeah. So I don't want to, I also just kind of want to follow up on something I noticed. You said that you, you keep it about the artist too, from what I'm understanding. So you asked, how do we feel about this? How do you guys feel about this? So this way it's kind of on them to change the course if they want to change it and they're in agreement. So do you use a lot of language like that when you're speaking to the band and not, I don't like this part, we should change it. Is it more... How do you guys feel about this part? Do you think uh, it's good or how would you phrase I, that type of question? I can be pretty like forward. I mean, maybe too forward, but that's always like the bands I'm working with now are Swedish and... Do I'm, not beat around the bush. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say. <laughs> so it's a bit different with com the communication. Uh, 
you kind of have to be more careful if they're not Swedes, I guess. But I could re I, I've said that more than 15 times. Like, I don't like this. We should not have this. <laughs> I've definitely said that. But you have to kind of establish a way of communicating to be able to say that because you're not in the end, in the end of the day, you're not trying to ruin things or force the band to be something they're not. You're just saying, I don't like this. And I'm, they paid me to influence the music and this is this is my desired influence right now i don't want this riff know your audience and how to communicate right. with them uh last right. question for me and then i'm going to get off stage and this one's probably the most important uh pineapple on pizza yeah or nay dude recently yay before that basically all my life no but uh <laughs> i tried well, I'm it i'm glad you found the light yeah cool cool <laughs> yeah it's good Awesome. Thanks, man. You're asking a Swedish dude about weird shit on pizza. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> should have asked him how he feels about shrimp and uh, peanuts. And uh, yeah, and, that's, uh, yeah, yeah I, I, it's a thing, but it's and, not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next up, Lewin Cantor. Hey, finally, finally got in. There Sorry, go. I'm new to Discord. I don't know how it works. Um, yeah, thank you for getting me on again. Um, no, I just wanted to ask um, regarding your live setup and stuff because obviously there's a lot going on in humanity's last breath and obviously in Viljar as well like what's your involvement when it comes to kind of taking that to the stage either tech wise or is there anything in particular when you're doing like backing tracks do you like have a certain process for kind of preparing them deciding what to put on if you have like um certain guitar lines that are more effect based and you're all kind of riffing away or whatever you do. Right, With right. That, like, yeah. What's your kind of process for that? Yeah, it's really involved and it's, it's really horrible. It's a really horrible process to, to like make a new set. It's just, uh, yeah, it's horrible. But the, the way I do it is I always bounce our new albums as stems, like from the get-go so that I have stems for later. So all my stems are always like good to go. And I actually did like remixes of the old HLB albums. So that way I kind of got updated stems even and also tracked bass because one of them was MIDI bass and one was old bad bass. So I, I have like fresh updated stems. And the way I do it is first I like lay out what songs we're talking about playing and what order. And when we when we decide on order, I, I uh, start kind of mapping out the tempos to the just the MP3 files. When I've done that, I kind of import the stems and I normalize all the stems. So they're like the same volume. So there's no volume drop when songs coming on. And I also send like the backing tracks as far as leads, effects, and some stuff like that. I send that to a limiter uh, because the stems themselves are not limited uh, yet. They're like bounced out before hitting the limiter in the album session. So they need some limiting to even out the dynamics. So when I have that, I line up all like the guitars, the bass, the drums, because when the drummer is, uh, when the drummer is playing the songs in his rehearsal space, he needs like the stems for the guitar and bass uh, and stuff like that. Not only the backing tracks. And you also need a click track, like a physical one, not like the one that's playing in the DAW, just like a audio track with the correct click clicks and count offs and stuff. So that's always fun. And, uh, and then uh, 
I program the whammy, uh, which is quite involved, and I do it in Pro- I do it all in Pro Tools. But when we do it live, we use Reaper, so I have to kind of convert it to Reaper later. And it's a weird process because when I've mapped out all the the ma- uh, the whammy and pitch correction or the pitch shifting. Uh, when I import that to Reaper, the MIDI tends to change for some reason. Uh, just going from DAW to DAW, I'm not sure what it is. So I have to kind of go through it again. And I do three different set lengths, depending on uh, if we're playing like headline or or like a opening or whatever. Uh, so I have to choose from. And then when I'm in Reaper, I automate all the the mutes so all the all the stuttery effects or the really tight riffs that are supposed to be like inhumanly tight that's like uh this like live editing basically you can call me a cheater uh, as much as you want but uh uh we uh, program out all the silences basically in all the songs so when i'm not supposed to be playing or be heard it's all muted so and that way we can get all those stuttery effects going that we use live and that's kind of like part of the like editing is part of the way i write music so to be able to do stuff live i have to have automation as far as volume and automation as far as pitch uh, because without those i cannot play the songs live it's just not possible it's really involved and like recently i even started doing eq uh, automating on like certain notes or like if the let's say one riff is pitched down like seven steps which is a whole lot it kind of gets a bit muddy the tone so i have like automated eq to bring down like the low mids on those sections just for that part yeah it's really involved but if i need to be able to perform those songs live i need to do all those things basically that's awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's that's incredible. I've never even thought of doing anything like that. So, yeah, thank Thanks you for, for your question, Lumen. Renzi, you're up. Well, I have two questions. Uh, the first one, Buster, do you use reference tracks for mixing or you have a vision before? So I have a vision before, basically. I just go on my ears first. But when I'm done with the mix, when I feel like I'm there with the mix, that's when I introduce uh, reference. Like after. Uh, I see. Honestly, I think about the question about having a vision or using reference tracks. I don't think it's either or, right, Buster? Like, no, I right. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that um, when people use reference tracks, as far as I understand, they're not using that to define a vision for their mix. They're using that in order to kind of get an idea for where their mix lives, quality-wise. Right, basically, like a guideline or something. Yeah, yeah. Is it sounding? Is it sounding way worse than the reference, or is it sounding on par, basically? And that kind of varies from day to day. Some mixes are just great out of the like when I'm done with them, they're great. But some mixes is like, oh god, like I have way too much bass, or I have like stuff like that. It it tends to be for me, I have way too much bass, uh, and I need to make it less basic that's almost always what happens and when i have too much bass uh, my mixes tend to be not as loud as well so um, they tend to just sound muddy in comparison have you ever had to re-record any instrument because the original that the band sent was so messed up or you ask edited tracks already 
Yeah, I've ha- I've had to do it, but I hadn't. The reason for doing it is not like me not telling the band, and I'm just doing it myself because I don't want to do work free. I mean, uh, there, that's like a opportunity for me to approach the band and talk to them about the tracking and like uh, potential solutions. Either they retrack it themselves, or they pay me, and I can do it, and that's fine too. But I wouldn't kind of do it without talking to the band first. Yeah, only with permissions, I see. Right, right, right. Okay, thank you. Thank you. All right, Kiko, you are up. Okay, so I had uh, two questions real fast. I wanted to first ask just real quickly, from your perspective as both a drummer and producer, what do you look for in drum samples? What do you actually consider a good library and what features would you consider important? And also... I've noticed that uh, a lot of people who produce and are also in a band seem to have a harder time of convincing their own band than just about anyone else. So was it for you easier or harder to convince your band to actually let you do any kind of production work? Or did they uh, want to go with anybody else before you? Right. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to answer the last question because I already forgot the first one. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, uh, as far as Viljarda goes, they, they, didn't, um, they didn't fight me at all on that. Uh, that's kind of also like an organic process. I, when I joined the band, I got stems from their like EP and I remixed that a couple of times just for fun. Uh, so already there, they kind of got a feel for how their music would sound with my mix. And they were stoked on that, uh, w- which was really cool. So it was quite natural for me to take the reins on that because, uh, yeah, they just liked the way I processed the sound and they liked the result. But we always work together on the mixes, of course. Like, um, But they tend to nowadays give minimum feedback basically because they just assume it's going to be great and uh, and that's good as well but uh yeah i just wish they were a bit more it <laughs> could be a bit more critical because that kind of lands on me 100 percent if they're not with me so uh but yeah that's just laziness from their part what was the first question uh, the first question was as a drummer and a producer what do you look for in samples and what do you consider important right. or not important as features or uh, process? Yeah, nowadays, process? Right, 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 right. right. Uh, yeah, now, uh, yeah, um, process. I used, I used a blend between processed and unprocessed, but like the bulk of what I'm programming is unprocessed samples that are super dynamic and multi-layered. And I tend to want to be able to have dynamics going upwards and downwards so i would program at like 110 to be able to go up on 127 on certain parts just but a lot of samples don't sound good at 110 Uh, most of them don't basically most of them sound best when they're hit the hardest so that's kind of a frustrating thing i guess but ggd is kind of the best as far as hovering around like 110, 115 and programming at that range to be able to do really hard hits when you need to. So I really look for that. But as far as the process samples I use are more like one shot or more or less dynamic and less multi-layered samples that are more a consistent thing. It's It sounds the same on each hit because I want that consistency blended in with the dynamics from uh, the the unprocessed 
library I'm using. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. Great. Thanks for your questions. Thank you. Okay. Joe Vitor, you're up. I wanted to ask you, Buster, uh, do you use any music theory when writing for HLB? Um, I was wondering how you get those very dissonant parts, how you think about them. And a uh, second question, I was wondering how you write uh, synth parts and atmospheric stuff, if you think about voice leading, how you figure out the chords and all that stuff. Cool. I know music theory, some music theory, um, and I use that knowledge when I when I make the music happen, but it's only when like the the music itself the, the music itself is in place. Let let's say I make a riff, um, and I only have the riff, and then I'm gonna start programming out the drums and the bass notes or whatever it might be. Um, I kind of know from a theoretic standpoint basically what I'm gonna do and what accents I'm gonna do, and I can explain that using uh, like. Like, like metric modulation and stuff like that. Like when making the actual music, it's usually only like vibe and just listening to it, just making it sound the best it can in my ears without thinking about any theory stuff. I know a fair, fair bit about theory and I think I use it more than I kind of realize uh, in like just daily, daily work because it's not something I really think about it's kind of like when the knowledge is internalized, it's kind of just there and I can just use it without thinking about it, basically. And uh, the synth, synth parts, I know a lot of people want, like, they, I, I get a, a lot of people approaching me about, like, ma make synths and effects or production for my band and uh, stuff like that. That sounds like HLB. And I can do that to some extent, but I'd rather not spend my time doing that for other bands because when doing that for HLB, it's a really long process. It's like, I'm adding stuff when I'm kind of listening to a riff and kind of hearing what's missing. Uh, I tend to add that stuff. And when I and when I hear certain sounds, maybe in a movie or a TV series, some, what it might be, uh, I can get inspired and kind of write down the type of sound I would like to layer on top of a riff or something. A great example of that is like I watched Adam Neely's video on something. I don't really know what the, the subject was, but he had a really awesome Bulgarian choir section that he uh, that he played. And then I went to that track and listened to that and got really inspired. And then I wrote and I sampled that choir and uh, put like a riff on it. But so, so it's like it's really different how how those effects and those synths happen. And it's not like a, a method I have like. I it, like I don't really know exactly each time what I'm gonna put, and I and I don't really have a, a method of making that happen. It's always different, and and that's why it's so hard for me to like produce a band with that like as far as effects and synths because it takes a long time with HLB to get it to where it is when it's released, and that's not something I can do on the spot with like a, with a band. That's why I use my manager for that a lot. I tend to want him to produce bands uh, synth-wise. And he, he, he kind of connects with the band and asks, asks what references they have for synths and effects, and, they, and he does it for them. And then I can mix those synths to make them sound more HLB for sure. And the processing I do, I tend to make them sound me meaner uh, because uh, the way uh, James makes synths is quite pop-oriented. Uh, so I tend to make them super dirty to make them fit in with what I think the song needs. But yeah, that would be my approach. I don't have an approach, basically. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for your question, Joao. 
looks like we are out of time. I want to thank all of you for hanging out with us. Buster, I want to thank you especially for hanging out with us again. Was thank you for pleasure. having me. It's always a yeah. pleasure, man. Yeah, for real. Always, always, always a pleasure. And um, we will see all of you next time. Have a great rest of your day. Night, Take care, everyone. Whatever. See you later, everyone. See you later. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALLEVYURM Audio at URM Academy. And of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy. And use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.